Welcome to the Empowered to Connect podcast, where we come together to discuss a healing-centered approach to engagement and well-being for ourselves, our families, and our communities. I'm J.D. Wilson, and I am your host. And today in the show, we've got um, an incredible guest. Scott Waters is joining us um, from Arms of Hope, and we are going to... Um, talk with him about a bunch of different things pertaining to parenting teens and tweens. Um, it is one of the um, great joys in life, one of the great frustrations in life to uh, be parenting someone who is growing up. And um, at whatever stage you start to see some independence and see some yearning to um, to be uh, their own person and adult, um, an adult type interactions, <laughs> there can be great joys that come with that. There also can be unbelievable frustrations. Amen, other parents of teens and tweens. Um, so we are going to talk with Scott about all kinds of things, um, namely how we can better connect with, better guide, better steer our young adults and our teens through this stage. And so um, he is an incredible guest um, with a great story and just so insightful. Um, so I'm excited for you to hear from him now. Here he is, without any further ado, Scott Waters. Well, we are here today with Scott Waters, as I said in the introduction, and uh, Scott's a longtime kind of friend of the program of ETC and um, does a lot of work with our friends at the Karen Person Institute of Child Development, which we'll talk about all that in a few minutes. So, um, Scott, I first, thank you for coming on today. And then I would also just say, why don't we start with people who are unfamiliar with your work or haven't met you before? Um, do you mind just kind of sharing your story and how you got into the work that you're doing today? Oh gosh. Um, yeah, it's, it's great to be here, JD. I, um, got introduced to this type of parenting, um, and parenting as a whole 15 years ago. Um, I came to work for a, a children's home here in East Texas called Bowles Children's Home, which has now changed names to Arms of Hope. And, um, at that time, my wife and I were, had been married five years, no experiencing parenting, but we just knew that we wanted to serve, um, particularly teenagers, um, from, um, from difficult situations. So, um, we came here after I lost my job in the subprime mortgage industry, which fell apart in 2007. Yep. Um, so I was part of that layoff and, um, we came to work for Bowles and soon thereafter they were introduced to, um, Karen Purvis through a speaking engagement that she did. And our CEO came to our staff meeting in tears. Wow. And, uh, we've been around since 1924. Um, our organization, he said, we've been doing it wrong for 84 years and we're going to change today. So, yeah, 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 yeah. And this is way before um, the uh, Institute of Child Development had even really introduced any work for teens. And so we've been working primarily with teens. I had um, uh eight young men in my um, cottage program as a house parent, ages 11 through 17 at that time. And we're like, how the heck do we do this for teenagers? You know, are we going to get down on the ground and do, um, uh, you know, hands and eyes and things like that? It's just a different language and lingo. And so what we um, decided to do is really take some of the videos that the Institute of Child Development had put together of, of Karen uh, Purvis speaking. Um, and uh, those are the lecture series that's available on the KPICD website um, that you can get. Um, but we just sat there as a staff and as a family, we read the connected child 
and we broke down the videos and then processed, how are we going to do this for teens? And so we just made it work. Um, And so that was my introduction to parenting. That was my introduction to working with kids in the foster and adopt and in the state system. That was our introduction. And it just really just snowballed from there. Um, Soon thereafter, we resigned as house parents and I stayed on full time and did work um, working with teenagers and young kids um, and eventually um, did a little bit of work in camps. And we hosted a camp with some Institute of Child Development students here um, and for our kids on in the program. We actually have two different main programs um, at Arms of Hope. One is a residential program for um, kids as young as five, all the way up to ages 18. Um, and then uh, we also have a single mom program. And we host on our campus about 29 um, single moms. And then we have another campus in um, the Hill Country of Texas that hosts up to 36 single moms and their kids. So all in all, we're serving about 100 um, people on our campuses on a regular basis. And uh, just trying to help our young uh, single moms parents, as well as um, helping our house parents um, stay sane and um, survive parenting because it's so extremely difficult. Yeah. Yeah. And then throughout that process, I ended up going back to school, get my bachelor's degree. We ended up adopting kids as well. Um, We opted three kids. They were ages seven, 13 and 16 at the time. That was a little over 10 years ago. Um, that was a sibling set and, um, I ended up earning my master's degree, graduated on the same day as my oldest daughter. She got her bachelor's. I got my master's same day. And, um, then I've been doing counseling at the residential program and for the, the single mom program ever since for the last six years or so. So if I, if I've kept track of all this correctly, you were working in mortgage industry and decided, well, that this career has been ended for me by the, you know, by the, the housing downturn. So I think I'll just go do one of the hardest things on earth that I could possibly choose to do. So that, that transition, will you describe what those first maybe, you know, weeks, months were like, as you guys transitioned into that, did you have any experience in that residential space before that? No, 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 no. I never really did childcare at all. Um, I did volunteer in the church nursery. Uh, same thing, basically. Same thing. And, and, and like many people that come to this type of work, we felt a call. Yeah. And so we just say, okay, you know what? We're going to follow that call. And at that time, we thought we were going to foster and adopt older sibling sets. Uh-huh. Um, but we had just moved our in-laws into our house and we didn't have room. And so um, we decided the next best thing is to go work in a, a children's home. My family and I, um, growing up, had supported children's homes um, throughout the state of Texas. Um, we had sponsored kids, had them over for the weekend, stuff like that. So, okay, so it, you're it, familiar with that world. With the programs. Yeah. Yeah. I had no idea how extremely difficult it is. Heartbreaking, not only for the kids that we serve um, or their families, but for ourselves. Yeah. 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 Self-care. We learned self-care very quickly and we still struggle with it. Well, I was going to say you have to, I mean, to be in that, 
industry as long as you have been now, like that you have to, like that's yeah. a necessity, right? Yeah, uh, absolutely. Or to be a foster or adopt parent, you have to, you have to understand and take hold of self-care. It's just so vitally important. As we back up, I think we could just say like, if you're a human on earth, you have to learn how to self-care. Absolutely. I mean, really like if we're going to be healthy as people, we got to, got to be able, I mean, I'll just, you know, hand up. I was just feel. I don't know what it was. I was feeling down before we recorded. So I pulled back in the parking lot from grabbing lunch. And I was like, man, I'm going to be old for a minute and go take a walk. And I, I literally just took, took a second, took a walk. It's a beautiful day here in Memphis. And so I, you know, wind is blowing. It's cool enough to wear a jacket outside. And and that was all I needed. I came back, popped back up the stairs. I was ready to go once I got go. back up here. So um, we all got to do that when we need to. Um, I want to move maybe into like your uh, professional work. So as you, what, what was the spark for you to get a grad degree? Did you, did you begin to see like, okay, I know that I want to do counseling professionally now. And here's kind of the track for that. Or how did that? Oh gosh, no, 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 no. So doing the work that I was doing with the kids and the families in our programs, um, I realized we were bringing in into our organization a lot of students that were earning their their master's and, and uh, doctoral degrees and um, training them. And I'm doing the training for these people that I don't even have a bachelor's degree at the moment. And so after a while, I just realized that I could do what they're doing because yeah. I'm teaching yeah. them. Um at the same time, um, I ended up getting my bachelor's degree just more along the, as a hobby. Um, what I found is Saturday mornings for my family were fantastic self-care times for me um, because my entire family sleeps until 10, 11 o'clock in the morning. Okay. And if you could take the advantage of that, um, awesome. Um, that just happened to be work for my family situation. It wouldn't have worked anywhere else except for online school. Yeah. And so I ended up getting my bachelor's degree. And then after I got my bachelor's degree, I had no intent to do anything beyond that. I um, ended up getting a bachelor's degree in uh, basically corporate training, which I do a lot of training here as well as work with the KPICT as well. And so I um, transitioned into um, getting that counseling degree when I was helping a friend doing some moving and she was working for the local university and said, you might be interested in our counseling program. And I said, I'll check it out. And so the next semester I was enrolled and um, going back to school again. Golly. So you get done with that. And now, and now you've been in that role for a while. Um, part of the reason we wanted to have you on initially um, was to talk about working with teenagers. Um, oh, yeah. If any, if any people are listening right now who have teens or, or preteens, or um, if you've ever been around a teenager before, you know, this is a, a it can be a, a precarious age. It's a fun age. There's lots of really incredible things about it, but um, the, you mentioned kind of getting down on hands and knees, two hands, two eyes, a lot of the tactics and, and tools that we have for building connection um, tend to be aimed at um, that early childhood stage of life. Right. And, and, obviously like that's the ideal situation is that you're, you're doing that in that phase and not all of us get to do that, but also your kids grow up and you got to figure out ways to adapt this type of parenting. So I wonder if we could start by just talking about, you know, as you began to, to adapt and develop Karen's stuff that, that you're learning from the connected child and from her videos and work with KPICD, as you guys were starting to adapt that for teens, do you have any, any memories of like your early discoveries of light bulb moments or 
the, you know, the one time after a hundred times of trying something that it, that it broke through and worked with a kid um, to build connection. And why don't we start there? Yeah. In the early stages, we were just kind of fumbling along, but what we discovered very quickly is the language of attachment that we use for kids carries on throughout the lifespan. And so it's very similar of working with younger kids, which is all the examples that we had at that time. Um, but it's different. We have to take in mind that the needs of a teen are different um, than the needs of a child. But the basic cycle um, that starts at infancy of they make an outcry, usually when they're born. And you got to consider when a child is born, that's the worst day of their life so far, because <laughs> everything has changed from yeah. the previous nine or so months that we've been yeah. in the womb. Everything's changing. We think we're going to die. Yeah. And so somebody coming along and saying, no, we're not going to die. I got you and I'll help meet your need. But at the same time, that aspect of when that mother or that father or that caregiver holds that infant for the very, very first time and they look into each other's eyes, everything that we've gone through up to that point, it's been completely worth it. Yeah. I've never met a mom and I work a lot with moms who has ever regretted at that moment. You know, the, the regret usually comes later on, but that's a different story. <laughs> um, but for, for our um, teens, they need the exact same thing. They need somebody to come along and say, we got this. Yeah. Um, let me help you meet the need. But at the same time, I delight in the stage that you're in. I delighted you and your humanity. And I really like being a part of your life. Yeah. Everybody needs to know that really the big, I'll just tell you the, the big aha moment for us came along when we're doing this work for kids and for teens. But when we started using and having that mindset, when we were working with one another as staff and especially as spouses, oh my gosh, that was the biggest light bulb. When my boss looked at me, when I was struggling and looked at me in the eyes and said, what do you need? Mm. I just I lost it. I just started crying. And I said, I don't know. And she said, yeah, okay, let's figure it out together. Yeah. And at that point I felt seen, heard and valued. Yeah. And, and that, that's, that's the goal for anybody, but especially with teens, they're, they're struggling. They really are. They're going through a period of reconstruction of their brain, the prefrontal cortex, which has to do with impulse control. It has to do with judgment, has to do with rational thinking, and it has to do with the sense of self is going through a reconstructed process. And so they have to be constantly reminded that they are valued, that we care about them. Yeah. Yeah. I bet that is so good. And I feel like we could do an entire series just on that idea, right? Like how to, how to care for each other as, as peers in the workplace, in the home. Oh, that's, mm -hmm. that's a really great reminder. Um, so, you know, a lot of our, a lot of times we have, uh, parents who are coming to us and they, they might be parenting biologically. Um, they might be parenting through a foster care setting, through an adoption setting. Um, what are some of the things that as you're doing parent coaching or working with other parents, 
that you're constantly reminding them of in this phase. I mean, that's obviously the brain being on fire is one thing. Like you mm-hmm. are brains, you know, being reconstructed. And that picture of innovation is really helpful, right? <laughs> like mm-hmm. you got plastic up everywhere. There's dust everywhere. It's not in its final stage, but but you can see the work happening. But you wouldn't live in that space while it's being <laughs> renovated. Absolutely. And, yeah. Um, what, what are some of those first reminders that you're giving outside of the brain development, you know, to, to parents as they're walking through this? Well, and, and outside of the brain development, because it all has to do with brain development. Oh, okay. Yeah. 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 And remember, we don't go through a reconstruction process unless we've already been constructed. Hmm. So usually about the age of eight or nine, the brain is fully functioning. You know, they got their chores, they know the system, they know the family. And then all of a sudden, usually about depending on on the child and depending on their history and their and their heredity, um, 10, 11, 12, they forget everything. Yeah. Okay. And the reason is, is because that reconstruction goes, goes on in the prefrontal cortex um, and of some other areas of the brain. And it's almost like they call it a pruning process. The things that are not important kind of go away. So we noticed it with our, our youngest where we're sitting at the dinner table and our youngest, it's almost like they forgot to eat and chew their food properly. And so now we've got seafood going on where they're just opening their mouth all the way. And we're like, oh my gosh, what happened? Oh yeah. This is the age where the reconstruction happens. And it gave us a little bit more patience with it and a little bit under more understanding. When you get frustrated with, of course, you know how to do this. You've been doing this for years. They may not know because now they're thinking of boys or girls Yes. Or cars or what's happening at school or football or anything else that is not the chore or whatever they're supposed to be doing at that moment. And so I think for us, it became a lot of, okay, let's have patience with our child. Let's also have patience for us mm-hmm. and understanding and recognizing our frustration has more along the lines of, oh, I thought we were done with this, but we're still doing it. Um, you know, as you're describing that, that makes it sound very easy, right? Like, oh man, just get a couple of reminders in there and we can put some post-it notes up and we're good. We're good to go. Um, oftentimes though that empathy or that patience is met with more hostility from kids in this, in this stage. And so um, as you're going, you know, when you guys were, were getting started, I, I know, and not getting started in your work every day, uh-huh. um, there are going to be moments where you're faced with extreme hostility. Why don't yeah. we talk about some of those regulation, the kind of practices, best practices, techniques, tools, or frameworks um, for when the stuff hits the fan and mm-hmm. got somebody fully dysregulated in front of you as a, as a team. Uh, with teens, you got to give them a little bit of space and time sometimes. Um, and it, parents know their teens more than anybody else. The unfortunate part is we feel like we don't at that moment. So as much proactive um, strategies as we can do, um, every time a teen enters our program on day one, we're asking them what helps you calm in situations. And the, the, pretty much the number one thing that we hear is music. So we go out and get them an MP3. We want to be very careful about Wi-Fi in our program. So we make sure it's an MP3. That's one of the old school MP3s. Um, I'm 49 and saying old school MP3 sounds weird, <laughs> but, um, but something that's not hooked up to the internet and that can just, I can go download some of their favorite music so that can help calm them and, and chill them out. The other thing that they often say is um, that the room 
or there's, is there safe space? But when we tell them to go to their room, it sounds weird and it sounds mm-hmm. triggering. So often we'll say it's time to go to your safe space. Yeah. We also create, create safe spaces outside because nature tends to do stuff for us. So we usually have the front porch that's available. Um, we're here in Texas. Um, and then we've got a space in our campus where anybody at any time when they need to calm, they can certainly do that there. We call it our calming bench or our safety bench. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. Okay. So having those safe spaces and then also whatever other tools that they need, we monitor and try to meet as many sensory needs as possible. So we do a little bit of sensory. Um, uh, we actually do a sensory assessment with them um, on the second week that they're with us to kind of get some ideas on what their body is seeking. And so we can meet those needs. If they need something that's going to keep them alert because they don't feel safe, we're going to shoot for the crunchy or the sour. If they need something that's calming um, to keep them going, then we usually start with gum, um, some sort of sweet gum that um, organizes and calms. Yeah, that's really helpful. That's really mm-hmm. helpful. Um, it, what kind of pushback do you get? Like when you get uh, either from parents or from, we can talk from both perspectives, from parents or from kids, like what, what kind of pushback are you getting these days from people as to this style of parenting, particularly with kids from um, a more difficult background or, or who have experienced some pretty intense things at this age of life? There's, there's always a school of thought, right? Like, no, you've got to give structure. You've got to give, you know, you've got to give a high, a high discipline environment for these kids to survive. Like what, what is your response to that? Or, or what kind of pushback do you guys get to this approach? You, usually with parents and, and uh, with parents, it seems like a constant here, the mantra, well, we got to prepare for the real world. Okay. And that whole real world concept. Yeah, it's great. But in my real world, I don't know about yours. There's a safe person that I can go to. Yeah. And I have safe people that I go to. And that's what we create is that safe person in there. The one thing to also remember is that safe person, they don't always treat like they're with kindness and respect. So if you think about it, we feel like a safe person would be the person that you go to and go, Oh, thank goodness. You're here. You are my safe person. I love you and adore you. But I often tell parents, it's almost like being that safe person. If you're playing tag and home base is constantly moving around. And when you finally reach home base, you're like, where have you been? Why weren't you there? What happened? That's what it feels like to be a safe base when you're a parent of a teenager. Okay. They're going to push back more when you're the safe base. They're going to keep everything together when they go to school and they're going to come up, come home and unload on you. And that's a natural phase during, uh, during the stage of discovering autonomy. Autonomy simply means who am I versus the rest of the world. How am I individual? We go through several different autonomy phases. One is as early adolescence, but the other one happens around two or three. And we tend to call those times the terribles. (laughs) Right? Yes, we do. Okay. Where I learned that I'm different than you and I can use strong words like no. Yeah. So usually during the autonomy phase for teens, especially when they're discovering their autonomy, they're starting to figure out who they are. And the first stage of that is I know I don't know who I am, but I know I'm not you. 
Yeah. So I'm going to fight back against everything that you are and everything that you tell me. And so I try to give parents grace during this time and just say, yes, it's part of the process. I mean, even Bessel van der Kolk notices that kids who are securely attached are going to be the ones who treat their parents worse and harder and meaner than kids who are insecurely attached. So if they are coming at us full steam ahead and pushing back on everything, then um, I try to remind parents that it doesn't feel good, but this is what a safe space feels like. And we try to keep and respect boundaries and, um, and teach respect during the process as much as we can. Yeah. Any, any tips for that? We're teaching respect in the process. Um, just stopping them and say, that's not okay. Yeah. Okay. I tend to do redos just a touch differently. Um, when I teach a child the behavioral redo, I'll actually have them walk through the mistake that they've done. Um, but I use uh, and, and, and have them like go through the motions that can be very shaming for an older kid yeah. or even an adult. So what I do is I call it the, the, the teen redo. It's actually drawn from no drama discipline by wow. Dr. Dan Siegel and Dr. Tina Payne Bryson. And it's really three questions that we ask. What happened? What could you have done differently? And what do we need to do to make this right? Okay. And so I'll start as a parent modeling that. This is what happened. I flew off the handle when you came home late. Yeah. What could I have done differently? I could have taken a deep breath and I could have said, hey, you may not know, but you're late. What could, what do we need to do to make this right? I, I, I'm, I'm maybe having this conversation, but maybe we need to end it with a hug or something like that. If I could teach my team that, right, and I can model that for them, that's usually a good process because that that's just the overall good problem solving skill that they'll need for the real world, right? So we give them that as a model um, to do it. So if they're if they're coming at me, um, I usually just say, "Hey, that's not okay." What could you have done differently? And just go from there. And if it's been a major mistake, I'll say, I'll go through the rest of the process. Oh, that's really helpful. Mm -hmm. uh, so I, I want to get back to your professional work for a minute. So at some point, as, as you got connected with KPICD, um, and then over the years, as y'all collaborated more and more, um, you began doing some work with them as a trainer mm -hmm. um, in particular. Would you want to talk about that process and, and how that's come about? And maybe some things you've learned through that process? Oh, gosh, it, it's it's been um, just a wild ride because it really just started with us reaching out to them uh, when I was uh, uh, doing my post house parent work. I was leading a few groups with our kids and um, Dr. Purvis and a few members of her team came onto our campus to help do um, some individual work with a couple of our kiddos in our, when at that time we had an emergency shelter and I basically asked my, my boss, if I can be a groupie and just follow along and do the whole fanboy thing and just whatever can happen, you know, wherever she was, yeah. we actually had a, um, one of our caregivers, um, uh, actually ended up going into the hospital, having an allergic reaction to a spider bite and they needed a fill in. And I just happened to be the fan that was hanging around. Yeah. So I filled in at that point and that's where I got introduced to the practitioner training. So the KPICD hosts a TBRI practitioner training. They're currently doing about four or five a year, but at that time, this was their second one. And um, Karen saw that and asked me to join that work. 
work um, in Fort Worth, Texas. And I was able to do that. And we just stay connected and worked with each yeah. other. So I'll attend the practitioner trainings now, now that before COVID and now after COVID, since they've been live, um, I attend those and I actually mentor professionals who are getting this work done and trying to change the world for kids um, throughout the world. And it's pretty fascinating work. Also assist them with their camps that they host at the Institute of Child Development um, and then do other training projects as they come along. And we just developed a really, really sweet partner with them, um, where our organization benefits from it. I feel like I benefit from it um, personally as well as professionally. And it's just been a um, it, it's been a trip just to kind of be alongside people who also get it and understand. I was talking to a colleague, one of our house parents um, earlier today, and she was mentioning how important having other people doing the same type of parenting has been for her. Okay. Yeah. And how we as an organization come together and really just have these coffee room chats where we can problem solve and things like that. And I feel like these professional times um, when I'm with other people who do the work and are passionate about the work. Those are where I get my cup filled. So being connected is highly important for us as parents and as professionals. So you talk about needing to have that community um, of other people where you have a shared experiences and, and there's a trust that's built where you can sort of let your guard down and talk more plainly. I think for a lot of us who are parenting older kids or, or whether it's um, a new experience, maybe a, a placement that occurred recently, or you're just changing. You mentioned the 10 year old um, at dinner, the changing phases, um, the moments you're noticing that and that need to build trust and to be able to let guard down with each other is one of the greatest desires of team parents. Um, and maybe let's spend the last part of our time talking about how to build trust um, with your older kids in the home. Oh, gosh. OK, so I'll, I'll, I'll preface this by kind of answering the other question of building that community. Yeah. Parenting kids can be the, one of the loneliest experiences ever. Okay. I was a house parent. The people next door to me were house parents on either side. And we felt like we were in a bubble. The moms that we, that we have on our program, there are duplexes and quadplexes. They feel alone. And so when we get together and we normalize that alone feeling, it changes everything. Oh, and it really builds that vulnerability. I think we could do the same type of thing with with teens. Okay. So understanding where our teen is coming from and understanding that the things that are going on in their brain are very, very normal. They can go a whole bunch of different ways. Okay. So one of the best things for our family and for the work that I've done for teens has been reading and listening to Dr. Dan Siegel's book, Brainstorm. And in that book, and I've listened to this with my teens as well. Um, so I recommend it for any parent of a teen or, or anybody in adolescence all the way up to age, um, anywhere from age 11 to even 30. We're going through an adolescent phase. And so that book has kind of opened my eyes and that work of the different things that are happening in a teen's brain. Number one, they're going to be more creative. Okay. Which could go either way. They can either be more sneaky or they can have an explosion of really cool things happening. So if I can allow those really cool things to happen with also watching the sneakiness, I can help give a little bit of, of grace in there too. I'm not trying to do a gotcha 
conscious system. I just understand that if they're out there being sneaky, maybe we need to build a little bit more trust versus I need to catch them sooner, right? The other part in there is they're going to be more attached to peer relationships than family relationships because they're understanding their autonomy in that piece of them. So when they start going through those phases, I hope and pray that they are um, finding some good kids, most of all, with decent adults around those kids. Okay. Because not only do we go through the phase of finding peer peer relationships, we're also seeking relationships with other older people who um, we hope that and, and we try to set them up with safe adults that they're around. And I don't know about uh, you, but I always had uh, felt like uh, another two or three sets of parents um, in my life as a team, you know, and we hope that for that for our kids and we, we try to empower that as much as possible. Mm-hmm. The other part is they're going through the autonomy phase and they're starting to have really deep questions. And I love this as a counselor because they come in all existential, like what's the meaning of it all yeah. or a faith-based program. They're like, what's the point of God? And I just, we just roll with it yeah. um, because it's very exciting to watch them process it. Mm-hmm. And I also understand this is not where they're going to end up. <laughs> This is part of the process. You know, they they are asking these big, deep questions and let's just answer those big, deep questions with them or ask them what they think or give them our perspective on what those deep questions are. Because I don't know about you, but I do not think the same way that I did as a team. I kind of moved beyond that. <laughs> Thank <laughs> Thank <goodness. God>. Yeah. <laughs> so all that to be said, understanding those aspects of it, they also are going to take more risks, which is fascinating because we want them to get out there a little bit more and take risks. This is why, uh, to be honest, uh, the, the, the entry age for the military is 17 years old because these are the ripe age for taking chances to yeah. do some, some uh, good work out there. But at the same time, um, understand that them taking risks, we want to help monitor the risks as much as possible yeah. because the rewards are going to outweigh the risk for them um, over and above and beyond. So I've got to understand that I don't have to tell them, remind them of what the risks are. They know what the risks are. They may be upset when they encounter those risks, but I don't have to remind them that they, what the risks are. They know what they are. They're just shooting for the moon, thinking that they're going to make it happen. And that the awesome thing that's going to happen that could happen at the end, that maybe has a half a percent chance is going to happen with all this other stuff. So if I understand that as a parent, I could build a trust with my team, have those safe communication, understand that I can't, I don't have to take things personally when they're combating me. They're just exploring their boundaries and exploring their autonomy. And it's nothing personal. It's just the phase that they're in. Yeah, I feel like that could be the entire podcast is to put that phrase on repeat and just have it play for about 40 minutes straight. Yeah, absolutely. I, I mean, I probably need that reminder as much as any person on earth. Um, well, this is this has been so awesome. Last question as we kind of wrap up. Um, that idea of uh, you know, allowing some risk taking and allowing dreaming and allowing this um exploration of boundaries and identity forming and all of that. When that comes crashing down, and I don't mean fatally, like permanently, but like when there are moments of unrealized dreams, unmet expectations, or 
I was super confident this is going to happen. So I took off after it. And now my dreams are crushed or the person says no to going to the dance with you, or they say no to the date or whatever. In those moments of heartbreak, um, where everything in us wants to scream, we told you so, what are, what are some great guidelines for us in helping to like, kind of catch them in those moments, but also continue them on their path? Yeah. Um, I think not screaming. I told you so is a very <laughs> important thing to do. Are you I, sure? I, yeah, absolutely. Uh, <laughs> because we can, we can even write it down if we want to, or email it to ourselves. But um, when we have those moments, I imagine myself as a younger child, um, we would build ramps to jump off our of, jump off of with our bikes. Okay. Yes. And inevitably I would, um, miss yeah and i would crash my bike and i would run in bloody with a scraped knee to my mom and the best thing that she could do was help clean me up put some uh, put a band-aid on it put some neosporin on it give me a hug let me sit down for a minute if i need it help me regulate and then send me back out again by basically saying okay it's time, you know, it's like, you, you know, it, it, giving me what I need, what I need in that space. Um, that's what we have to do for our teens. We can sit there and lecture them all day. They don't need our lectures. They need us to basically comfort them, be that safe base, be um, as the circle of security. If anybody is familiar with that work, being the hands that welcome them back in that attachment cycle, being the ones that basically say, man, you took a shot. Okay. Yeah. And, and having shots fall apart really, really hard. Yeah. And just be in that moment, reflect back the feeling and then allowing them to dust themselves off and with our help and then trying it again, you know, um, sometimes it feels like they're never going to try it again. Um, if we're, especially we're working with introverts or kids who have anxiety issues, but given that confidence that, okay, we can try this again, you know, and moving on from there. Um, so vitally important to build that trust with the team. Yeah, man, Scott, thank you so much. Um, I will say, you know, one rule we have is that once you've been on the show, you, you have to come back on whenever we ask you, like that's a, that's part of the gig here of, <laughs> so we'll definitely need to have you um, back on again. That's yeah. Bring it. I'd love to. Awesome. Well, thanks so much. And, and uh, for people who want to follow any of your work or, or um, follow arms of hope, how can they find get in touch with you guys? Um, you can find us at arms of hope.org um, online. Um, you can also follow some of the work that I do with the uh, Institute to child development at um, child.tcu.edu or better yet you can see um watch some of their youtube videos they do have a karen purvis um, or look up kpicd on youtube and it'll take you straight to their page there's probably about 75 to 100 little short videos that are available there including some of this early work that she did with etc um decades ago oh yeah um and you can also see a, um, a younger thinner version of me um in the <laughs> in the uh, uh, teen preview for the teen video. Um, but all of their, all of their full uh, size videos or long uh, full length videos are on their website, but you can see the previews and some great tips and tools on their um, YouTube page. Awesome. All right, Scott, thank you. Yeah. Glad to be here. <laughs> 
Well, again, just a huge thank you to Scott for joining us and lots of wisdom to be had there. Um, somebody who has worked uh, tremendously hard and, and for a tremendously long amount of time um, at just building connection, um, building attachment, understanding how um, the brain works and how um, we can restore relationship and restore um, healing and connection through uh, relationship. And so I, I'm just, it was a great conversation with Scott and I'm, I'm super encouraged and I hope you are too. Um, for everybody here at ETC, for uh, Kyle Wright, who edits and engineers all of our audio, for Tad Jewett, the creator of the music behind the Empowered to Connect podcast, I'm J.D. Wilson, and we will see you next week on the Empowered to Connect podcast.